1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clobus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Philip Reed, author of the book, The Merchant Ship in the British Atlantic, 1600 to 1800. Philip, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Mark. Glad to be here. Oh, glad to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something
0: about yourself. I am an independent scholar. I am based in coastal North Carolina. I work on the merchant sailing ship of the early modern world, primarily in the Atlantic from a history of technology perspective. I have a background in Atlantic history, uh, maritime history, maritime archaeology, though not at the professional level, just graduate training, Um, but I do know the discipline uh, and I use it. Uh, My master's degree was from East Carolina University. Maritime History and Archaeology. It's now called Maritime Studies. That program is flourishing, thankfully. That was uh, many moons ago. In 2017, I finished my PhD in Maritime History at Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's. And the book we're talking about today grew out of the dissertation study that I did as part of that degree.
1: What was it that led you to write a dissertation and then a book about uh, the merchant ships that were built and operated in the British Atlantic in the 17th and 18th centuries?
0: The interest in sailing ships is very old. Um, I got obsessed with sailing myself when I was about 19, and I'm 52, so that's been a while. Uh, it recreationally, I learned how to do it, um, just kind of got this general obsession with the ocean. I got certified as a diver, and then because I just can't stop, I eventually got certified as an instructor. Uh, so this whole being at or on or under the water uh, was a, a, an obsession for a long, long time. And it's, it morphed into something professional by a roundabout process. Uh, But I wrote my master's thesis in 1998 on a square rig sailing ship. And as far as this particular project goes, I would say the origins of it came from studying the British Atlantic in this period uh, and realizing that there really hadn't been any work done on the ordinary merchant ship that really brought together the types of source material and the disciplinary foci that really needed to come together, it seemed to me, to, to do a proper study of it. I think it's a good example of uh, something that sort of slipped through the cracks. Um, and, and And as you know, the cracks between disciplines are more like canyons most of the time, unfortunately. <laughs> so it struck me that I sort of had the background and the interests and the perspective that I might be able to pull something like that off. And, and, I, and it began to intrigue me um, that I didn't think it was as well understood as the literature sort of would lead you to believe it was. And so I thought, well, this might be a good rabbit hole to, to go down. And it is an extremely broad, ambitious topic. Um, some of your listeners will be familiar with uh, the eminent early American scholar Jack Green. Uh, I met Dr. Green at the uh, John Carter Brown Library uh, five years ago, and I, he asked me. He's a very nice man. He asked me what I was working on. I told him, and said, "Well, that's an ambitious topic." And I said, "Yes, sir, it is." <laughs> um, so it it's uh, it, it is indeed, and you know, as we'll as we'll cover in in the book, uh, as we talk about the book, you, you you it's it's really the the purpose of this project is to. Sort of resurrect this topic as something worth studying and basically just say, hey, this is not all put to bed. It's not all settled. It does have something to teach us and it's worth some
1: work. I have to say personally, that's what surprised me when I was reading your book, because on one level, it's a topic with which we it seems like we've never really gotten away from it. I mean, there's plenty of books out there about American sailing ships. It's long had this huge uh, cultural imprint. We uh, talk about it in, in a lot of different contexts. And yet reading your book, it was fascinating to see just how little we... Really know about it? How little we know about the ships themselves, how they were operated. We can reconstruct them. We can pull together a lot of details, and yet it's kind of like piecing together a skeleton of a dinosaur. Which yeah there's we can get we have the general form. We know parts about here and there, but as you point out, there are these huge gaps in our knowledge that we are only really just beginning to uh, fill in.
0: I like the dinosaur skeleton analogy, and I think it's apt. Um the reality is, you know, this is lost technology, and it's been lost technology for some time. And even those who were still sailing in, uh, let's say, 19, uh, 1912, uh, say, the, the on the big German square riggers or whatever, there was lots about the 17th, early 18th century vessels that they would not have known because those were no longer in use. And so, you know, you mentioned that we reconstruct them, and, and when we do reconstruct them, uh, as, as I, I discuss a little bit in the book, there's this process of relearning, um, just basically through trial and error, uh, what these things do. Hmm.
1: I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining what it was that we have known about the topic until, uh, until now. Basically, what is it that we've understood about the ships and what is it that we didn't really fully understand about the technology until we began this process of rediscovery?
0: I think we understood that there, there's sort of the, the incredulity factor. Uh, if, you, if you hang around you know, Jamestown or uh, Grays Harbor, Washington, or any number of places where they have um, really well-done, believable, credible operational replicas – um if you hang around there and 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 listen to visitors i think one of the things you'll you'll run across quickly is um, this incredulity like can't believe that these things did all the things that they did um so we know we know how capable they were uh and and we know that goes back a long ways so i think that's common knowledge um we know we have a basic sense of okay these things are made of wood and they're powered by cloth sails uh that are you know run by by ropes Uh, We know that Um, I think, though, we we don't the biggest thing I would say that that we don't appreciate in general um, is the especially in this period is the um, the evolutionary adaptation that went on the incremental technological change that went on um, against the backdrop of these really strong technological continuities that are legit. They're real. They, they persisted from, um, you know, from let's just roughly say 1500 until 1900. Um, or at least until most ships were no longer plank on frame wooden construction. And so, yes, the, those continuities were real, but but the continuities have been overemphasized. And then as I, as I discuss, if you, you know, want to start getting a little bit, um, mentality focused, the, the, the current obsession with innovation and and, the, and and that in technological history that that actually has a long history the obsession with innovation the obsession with um, drastic change um, and the, and the, the tendency to focus on that out of proportion uh, have made that, that all has helped make this technology seem uh, static and stagnant and I think one of the things that actually abetted that, was a lot of the literature that survived from the period. And I've learned since then, in more reading of history of technology outside this particular topic, um, that one of the things we have to be careful with when we read treatises and pamphlets and handbooks and all of this wonderful stuff from the period that we rightly think is so valuable, it's like these are our written sources, is those things are all written with an agenda. And and with treatises and handbooks and pamphlets and stuff, the agenda is frequently I'm going to tell you why the way things are now isn't acceptable and why we need to change it and how we should. And if you listen to me, everything will get better. So, you know, there's an ax to grind there uh, to some extent. And so a lot of the, the, the technical literature from this period helps us think that this technology uh, was high bound and overly traditionalistic and that shipwrights were this jealous, you know, closed guild of, secretive practices that didn't want to innovate because they were a vested interest and they wanted to protect their, their trade and their money and all this. And, you know, always with stuff like that, there's a grain of truth there. But I think it's ultimately very misleading. Um, It doesn't encourage you to look for um, the ability of this technology to be responsive to uh, changes or new challenges. Uh, It look, it encourages you to to see the opposite or to assume the opposite. Um and if anything, I think studying this um the way that I did shows you that no, that is not valid. That's not accurate.
1: I like that point that you make in your book, and I also like how you go about explaining it, how you do it by effectively walking the reader through the various steps that you begin by explaining what you know some of the terminology of the period is, what what these things mean. But then you begin, but then you move on to talk about, Things like how the ships were built, how the ships were designed, how they were operated. And in the process, you don't just focus upon those innovations. You also highlight as well those changes that were made. And I was wondering if you could do that for us by, by talking about, by, by beginning where you begin that process with how these ships were constructed. And what were the what were those continuities and what were those innovations that you see during this two century period?
0: Well, they were constructed first and foremost by um, artisanal shipwrights. These are people who came up in the, um, you know, what we now think of accurately as the sort of apprentice journeyman master system. Uh, originally, uh, there, they were they were a craft guild in, in, in England, certainly, um, going back to the late Middle Ages. So like any other skilled trade, you learned it from somebody who already knew how to do it and then you worked your way up. So these were not skills that were taught in some sort of vocational school, generally speaking. You didn't learn it from a book. You learned it by doing it and by watching it done by those who were really good at it. And the skills involved uh, in doing this are difficult to acquire. Um, it, it actually, I, I think to, to, to speak in a nutshell, it requires a pretty advanced level of brain programming. You have to be able to visualize and conceptualize things that most of us can't. Um, and you have to be able to um, do things with your hands, with your fine motor skills um, that most of us would, would really have to, to work long and hard to, to be able to do. And unlike playing a piano or tuning a dulcimer, those, fine mo- those motor skills have to be uh, executed with a great deal of strength as well. So you have to be able to execute um, very precise um, motor skill movements, but you have to do it with strength. So there's force behind it. So acquiring the skills to do it would have been a big deal. And we know that because we do it. And the people who are doing that now, um, you know, they, they know this and they know when they try to teach people to help uh, that, it, that it's a real learning curve to learn to do this. They were built uh, using resources that were, we, we wanted, it's tempting to just blithely say widely available. Well, <laughs> they, they weren't widely available in England anymore, um, and we, we're going to get scarcer. They were widely available in the Americas, at least, especially along the eastern seaboard. More, of course, so than, than in the West Indies, but but in the uh, on the eastern seaboard, uh, and, and certainly in, in Spanish America, too, uh, trees were not exactly... Um, in short supply. Having said that, you know, if there's one thing we humans are good at, it is you know, rapid depletion of any resource we, we come across. And it's important to understand that early modern people were just as good at that as we, as we are. No, they didn't do it on the scale that we do, but, but they were really good at it. You know, they, they, for example, we, we know that, that here where I am, they had cut down all of the really big old cypress trees that they could get to probably by 1750 or 1760 um and this was not exactly the most happening crossroads of of, of western civilization back then so you know it, anything they could get to they, they took it and that required um ad- adapting your techniques um, you know as your big logs disappear well now i got to make this out of three pieces i used to make it out of one so you gotta you gotta change how you do that but if you could get the wood um you can build one pretty much anywhere you got access to water um so Naturally enough, they were generally built next to harbors, uh, next to the mouths of rivers that that uh, led out to the sea. Um, you just needed to build stocks, which is like scaffolding, uh, out of timber. And uh, you, you get the timber that you want to use to build uh, the vessel. In our period, in our location, that we're generally talking about the most common shipbuilding timber was white oak. Uh, but there were plenty of others uh, that, that that had had their place, and and, and there was a, a tendency to use a mix uh, if it was available, different woods with different properties for different purposes in the ship. So most ships were a mix, they were not just one type, but if they were, white oak is going to be that wood. Um, generally speaking, that that wood needed to be seasoned, it needed to be dried um, before being used. Greenwood is prone to rot. Um, so it's not, you don't want to just cut a tree down and sawmill it and throw it into a ship's hole. That's, that's a crappy way to build a ship. It was done in a hurry, you know, out of necessity, especially building, you know, small warships, uh, to, to meet an exigency, but not good best, not, not best practice and not something that they normally would have done. Um, normally you would fashion a skeleton starting with that big old longitudinal bottom timber called the keel. Um, Then you would fashion what we would think of as ribs. Um, They're called frames, and those were fashioned out of several pieces. The shape of those frames would then define the shape of the hull, and they would generally remain more or less the same uh, girth uh, from about the midpoint or forward of the midpoint all the way up to where the the ship started to curve into its bow. Um, at the front these ships carried their maximum breadth forward very consistent design trend um, Very consistent continuity throughout the period and not just British. First, I, I might as well just say right here There's almost nothing unique about um, British or English the, the reason that that's not why I did the study about that the, that has to do with the the um, the setting um, the environment as, as I talk about in the book as far as technology goes, almost all this technology is originally Dutch. Um, the, the Dutch the Dutch gave the Atlantic, basically, its merchant ship technology. We learn more about that all the time. Um, so I'm not suggesting that, that these are um, unique to uh, British practice. From the midpoint back, the frames are going to narrow. Um, and how much they narrow and how quickly and in what particular shape, well, that depends on the design that shipwright's going for. This is all done by eye. We're not talking about blueprints. I'm not talking about what we call lofting. Um, We're talking about something that's done basically by eye and by a very sophisticated understanding of proportion and um, the relationship of one dimension to another. And that's what I kind of meant by, it seems to me that you really just need to have this conceptual and dimensional um, perspective in your brain that is just there. Um, you probably you, you and a lot of other people uh, have probably heard uh, the stories about, which are true, about how they've proven that the London cabbies have reprogrammed brains, that their brains contain London. And if they and if they don't, they don't pass the, the, the license exam. Uh, and so, you know, psychologists have proven that that these guys brains are reprogrammed um, to have London mapped in their heads. I think there's something similar going on with these shipwrights. I think their brains are programmed to actually be able to conceptualize things that you, you were certainly not born able to do. Um, so they they fashion these things according to their concept of how it's going to be designed. Once the skeleton and then you've got deck beams that, that hold it up together up top. Once the skeleton's done, it's planked. Uh, planking is, you know, when you and I think of a plank, we think, of well, you know, like a one by six or something that we would throw down on, you know, make a deck or, or a floorboard. These planks tended to be more on the longer lines of two to three inches thick. So we would call them like big, thick boards. Uh, but they were planks and they were, they were laid over the skeleton. Um, and then usually fastened, uh, by a, what we would call a big dowel. Uh, it was called a trunnel, um, that was driven through a carefully, precisely bored hole in both pieces and that way you've got a fastener made of the same material as the pieces being fastened it goes into the hole so tight banged in there with a, with a big mallet or a sledgehammer um, that it seals and then to make it stay there you drive a wedge into the head of it to widen it even more and, and anchor it in there um so it's this it's it's a ship is is a you know, hundreds of pieces uh, then the seams of those planks are caulked, uh, and sealed over with pitch. Um, so it's amazing that they were watertight given that they flexed the way that they did. Uh, but they tended to be until they got so old and knackered as the Bruce would say that, um, you know, that, that it was hard to keep them from working, uh, and, and taking on water. But that was the point at which you knew if you were responsible that, it, you know, it was time to, time to retire that vessel, uh, And they had, you know, reasonably, longevity varied tremendously. Of course, anything you use uh, all in the Caribbean is not going to have nearly as long a life as something that you would use in colder water because it's exposed to a lot more marine growth that's destructive, especially the shipworms. Um, So, you know, maybe five years of hard use down there. But, but, you know, we know of plenty of these ships that were still in service uh, 20, maybe more years after they were built. So... Um, they were not disposable items, um, even though they, you know, they didn't last as long as as most of our steel ships do, but but they,
1: they had a pretty respectable longevity. Hmm. You also described, also described another aspect of the ships that was very important, which is their flexibility, how they or you describe how you meant you alluded to the fact that, you know, you're talking about uh, how sometimes they're building small warships, they're building merchant ships. And yet, as you explain in your book, those Ships were not dramatically different. I mean, nowadays you you can't use, say, a super tanker as an aircraft carrier. You can't use right. Uh, a, you can't use a, a a patrol boat as as a container ship. A, a, whereas back then, the ships that they were that they were designing and building, you know, were were much more flexible in terms of their roles. Yes,
0: I, that is true. And, and and the way that I try to think about that is. There was certainly much more bleed over between, you know, a a merchant vessel and a warship in the 18th century and the 17th century than there is now. I think, though, we can take that too far. And I think that one of the ways it's been taken too far is um, by perhaps assuming too much or with too much confidence that if we learn something about how a warship was built or designed, then we can just apply that to the, the merchant counterpart. The problem with that is that the two are built for a completely different purpose. Um, in most cases, they are built um, with completely different um, budgetary financial considerations. Um, and they're built with different physical demands expected of them. So while there is overlap, certainly plenty of it, Um, I think that what we have to do when we when we are looking to understand and the reason this is important is because, of course, the documentation, the the source material um, on warships is much better because the Navy, you know, the Royal Navy kept um, documentation of everything they ever built. Uh, We have uh, wonderful plans, rig drawings, inventories, spec sheets, as we would call them. Um, of, of vessels, uh, because they were naval vessels, merchant service, you don't find that these vessels were not documented that way. There was no, there was no imperative to do that. Um, and so, you know, merchant vessel is built to be cost effective and to carry cargo for profit and a warship is built to, um, be a, basically a, a floating gun platform. More so the the bigger ones, but but to some extent they all were. Especially by the eighteenth century, especially even even in the seventeenth century. By the time we get to say sixteen thirties, sixteen forties, the 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 uh, divergence of warships and merchant ships was already uh, obvious to anyone at the time who was remotely nautically savvy. Um, so while it was true that you could take a fast merchantman and and turn her into a privateer uh if you if you felt that that was um, the way to to way to go um your battleships they were you know they they were never going to be converted to merchantmen and, and vice versa so anything that was you know a purpose built warship was a purpose built warship and anything that was a purpose built merchant ship was going to remain so um so yes you're right uh that that there was a lot more overlap but there was enough distinction that we need to be careful about um, trying to learn too much about merchant ships from warships. I think that the um, the the there's a the British ship historian Brian Lavery, uh, who is well respected for good reason, uh, has sort of put forth a rule of thumb, and I think I put this in the book. I'm pretty sure I did that. Um, a lot of times you can sort of assume, at least for the British uh, fleet, that technological innovations on warships would appear easily about 20 years later on merchant ships that there's probably a lot of truth to that. But on the other hand, there's going to be you know, innovations on a warship that there's no good, there's not going to be any imperative to put them on a merchant ship or maybe vice versa, because again, you know, they're, they're built for two different purposes and with two different sets of financial imperatives. Um, the Navy does, the Navy overmans everything. You know, they, they don't care about, about economies and crew size. They want all the, the, able-bodies they can just cram on there um, for various reasons that we don't need to go into. But the the exact opposite imperative is true of a merchant ship. A merchant owner wants the smallest crew he can possibly get away with because that's big money. And the smaller crew he can get away with to run that ship effectively, uh, it just increases his bottom line.
1: The Navy doesn't care about that. That actually gets to something you talk about later in the book that I thought was really fascinating, which is this notion of the amount of manpower necessary to operate these ships and how, while that dynamic you describe is very true, at the same time, these ships were so much more labor-intensive than their counterparts were. We're not even talking about, say, the modern age. We're talking about, say, like the late 19th century when you're already seeing innovations like, say, steam and so forth and, and the use of, of of metal ships. You describe. I, I was particularly struck by how you described that one person who in the 1870s was being uh, assigned an old rigger, and he thinks it's going to be uh, 30% more labor, and it turns out it's going to take twice uh, the amount of normal labor it would it would be for the ships he's used to in order to operate these types of ships that were very commonplace in the 17th and 18th centuries.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's just the difference between, most of that is just the difference between a merchant ship and a warship, because we're, we're, we're talking about uh, Captain, Captain Ribka Rick, who um, is in charge of the brig Niagara up in, um, uh, Erie, uh, and and he used to command the 1870 brig Alyssa, which is in Galveston, Texas. If I'm not mistaken. And now he and when when he went to the, the Niagara is a is a, a very well researched um, legit uh, rep reconstruction of a a fast brig that was built uh, in a hurry in, uh, for the War of 1812 on the Great Lakes, and because she was built to be a fast maneuverable warship, she was. She was intended to carry a large crew, and the Alyssa, which was designed to run as economically as possible, was not. So the the mechanical advantage available on the uh, Niagara, the warship, was uh, not as 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 great. Um, the, she was not rigged for mechanical advantage to the same degree that that the 1870 uh, bark was. And the reason for that was that. The more, you, the more turns or falls, as we call them, that you have going through your block and tackle system, the more mechanical advantage you get, the, the less effort it takes for you to, to work that, 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 that rig. But it's slower because you've got to run more rope through the tackle system to, to operate it. Well, in a, on a warship, what you're going for is speed and maneuverability. You need to be able to maneuver this vessel as quickly as possible. It might save the vessel from being destroyed. Um, and you don't care how many men it takes, however many men it takes to do that. You're going to pile them on there and pay them and train them. on, on a, on a merchant ship. If you were to set things up that way, um, you would be totally working against your bottom line. The, it doesn't matter that that speed difference in the ability to move a sail, um, on a merchant ship is, is not important. Really? Um, what is important is being able to cut the crew size so that. Um, You know, you have a chance of making a profit given all of the incredible risks that that are out there all the time. We know, for example, I've been on one, a a New England schooner of the 19th century, which is really, really similar to a New England schooner of the 18th century. A hundred feet on deck can be operated just fine by a crew of three. Wow. (laughs) That's a pretty small crew there for for, uh, a ship
1: that size. yeah.
0: But you don't have to climb the rig. It's a four and a half rig vessel. There are no square sails, so you know, you're not climbing the rig. Um, it, you, there's your heaviest work really is uh, is your ground tackle, and it's but it's pretty. What a windlass can do, and a couple of guys that know how to handle a big old anchor. Um, it's pretty. It's pretty cool to watch them work because you would think this would be so much more brutal work than it than it is. And so you know we are good as humans at figuring out ways to. Um, you know, supplement our brute force, which isn't, you know, let's face it, we're, we're not very strong. So we, we, we usually do best when we figure out how to use our brains and our, and our uh, fine motor skills to, to overcome our lack of strength.
1: That gets to a, an approach in your book that I, I thought was uh, very striking, which was how you, you, in so much of history of technology, there's this idea of technology as a uh, as a, a supplement or a replacement for human labor. Whereas what you talk about in your book, because you're talking about a slightly older period than so many histories of technology, you're talking about How people are employing technology, how they are uh, adapting in ways that because they don't quite have the labor-saving approaches. And I'm thinking about that in a different context, which is – and here I'm uh, uh, also thinking about in terms of the role, the relationship between the people who design the ships and the people who build the ships. You talk about the shipwrights. And I thought that was really interesting because I didn't quite appreciate the role. I mean, nowadays we think of it as as a much more segmented process. You have the people who design the ships, the people who build the ships, and the designers design the ships completely, and builders build them. You describe a much less uh, a, a much less uh, divided process. It's it's much more integrated, and the shipwrights are playing this role of of having a lot of autonomy to make decisions in terms of how this these ships are to be built and 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 and. and uh, how they're to be, uh, uh, you know, in, 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 to a certain degree, uh, shaped out once you get past the plans,
0: Right. Um, and really what we're getting at there is the difference between artisanal craft and uh, what are we going to call it, uh, industrial production, uh, whatever. Um, and yes, you're right. The, the artisanal craftsperson generally has a more comprehensive role than any particular person in the way that we tend to do things. Um, you know, there's no engineer, there's no naval architect, there's no foreman of the crew. Generally speaking, I mean, I'm, being, I'm, I'm using generalizations here. In a big yard, there's going to be more division of labor. If you, if you were hanging around Deptford, the big Royal Navy dockyard, um, especially once the French Revolutionary War is cranked up, you're going to see a, a specialization in division of labor for sure. Um, but in a small yard, you know, on the northeast coast of England or in Ireland or in Massachusetts or Jamaica, uh, you know, not so much. Um, and the most important point, you know, as you suggest, is that whoever's in charge of that construction has the design in their head and is also in charge of executing it. So, yes, there is there is that that's the nature of this kind of artisanal craft that, and I think the main reason, as I mentioned in the book, that we got a, that the, the, the main difference is um, the, the trial and error or the, the risk management uh, strategy of an artisanal shipwright was based on experience. So if you were going to innovate something, you needed a really powerful imperative to do that because if you get it wrong, somebody could die. You lose that ship. Somebody, you know, loses a f- bunch of money, maybe their lives, um, and your reputation is behind that. So you have to if any innovation. And they did innovate. They tinkered. They innovated. They they riffed on things, as we would say. They improvised. Um, but you needed to do it with a lot of caution. Um, because the stakes were very, very high. We can to some extent now and, and have been able to since probably the, the mid 19th century, uh, we, we can do more to anticipate how something's going to work before we build it. And that became more important when you needed to make more quicker, more drastic changes in your technology then, then it's really helpful to to be able to predict um, what what a certain thing might do. Very imperfect, though. You know, by no means was this infallible. Nothing close. Um, we 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 certainly had our share of spectacular disasters. Um, you know, post 1850. Uh, but we did increase our ability to use predictive tools. I think they they their predictive tools were experience and an understanding of the principles. So I think while it is. Unfair and inaccurate to characterize them as high bound and um, and stubbornly resistant to innovation. They were definitely conservative because they
1: had to be. And when you consider the amount of resources that went into building these ships, that's perfectly understandable. I mean, this is right. not a cheap operation.
0: Oh no, 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 no! It never has been. Oh, you know, um, you can. Care- there's that old quip. You know, only rich countries have navies. Um, well. You got to have money to have a ship. I don't care what kind of ship it is, um, and you know, even the, even pe- that's why we see so much fractional ownership. When it's why we see so many ships that uh, you know have up to thirty-two owners. In fact, eventually the the par- eventually Parliament um, capped that. They were like, "This is ridiculous," and you know, no, you cannot have more than this many owners. Um, I think more typically you might find like four, um, but it was it was more common. You know, to have a, a multiple owners of a vessel, you had to you have to you had to be really wealthy and well established um, to to own one outright. I mean, the, the example, the examples that I can easily think of from our side of the pond, the Browns, the Crown and Shields, the Derby's, um, they got rich enough over time that they had the kind of money that they could just order ships built for themselves that they owned outright. Um, but they didn't start out that way.
1: And it also gets to uh, another aspect that you just addressed in your book, which is that, yes, these are expensive. Yes, you have fractional ownership as a risk management strategy, but that you also have the fact that they're not doing this as a charitable endeavor. They're seeking to make a profit from it. How do they balance that out?
0: Um, I think, I think if there's anything that I can say with real confidence in terms of a conclusion from this book, because, because the book, to a very large extent is a preliminary exploratory study that that wants to raise questions a lot more than answer them. But one of the things that is clear is um, every decision they made was risk management. Every decision they made um, was risk mitigation because to do it at all was so risky, you know, to engage in this at all was so risky in every way that once you committed to engaging in it, then, you're almost obsessed with trying to, to uh, mitigate those risks as best you can. Um, and so things like, well, why didn't you ships get bigger when they could have? Well, because the a better risk management strategy was to build more ships that were smaller than build, you know, fewer ships that were bigger. Um, it goes back to, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket, that kind of thing. Um, so in a way it's kind of a form of diversification. Uh, and speaking of diversification, most ship owners had other things going on. That, that you know, they they were not fully invested in, in ship owning because it was too risky. Um, they had other concerns for the most part. Uh, unless you know, unless it was like you know, Captain So and So who managed to save enough money to buy his own schooner and he just does like in you know, shuttle trade, you know, locally or whatever. Yeah, he might be. That might be all he has. But but a, a merchant ship owner, you know, I, he's
1: got he's got his fingers in a lot of pies. it is that balancing act is fascinating and it kind of underscores some of the things you talked about earlier in the book which is that a lot of these designs were conservative because they wanted to go with what works they're not building something that's so innovative that you know to I'm thinking of the the famous example of uh, the, the the Swedish ship that collapsed in 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 the in the harbor off Stockholm uh, in, in the in the 17th century this great example of a ship that was you know very you know Pushing the boundaries, for the result yeah, of it, it yes. you know, it didn't really get it didn't right. get outside the port. Yeah. The,
0: the Vasa is a perfect example of what happens when you let politicians design ships. <laughs> um, you know, the, the and and again, when we, we uh, talked about the different imperatives between warship design and merchant ship design, it was just, you know, the Vasa was to be a statement and it's got to have more guns, bigger guns, uh, you know, be more grand and more impressive and more intimidating than anybody else's flagship. Uh, and unfortunately, um, the, the people who were charged with building that thing did not have the ability to push back against the politicians and say, Hey, you know, you don't want to do this. Uh, this is not, this is not good practice. Whereas, um, you know, on a much more prosaic scale, uh, I, I talk about a correspondence in, in the book where you've got a, you know, you've got a, a British investor in, in England, who's corresponding with, uh, his business associate Philadelphia, and they're working to get a vessel built. And the, one of the things that, that they address in the correspondence is that, well, the shipwright has come back and said, um, that he will not do this. He will not, um, Build to this particular dimension he's going to alter this dimension I believe it was the breadth to depth ratio which is typical that that's a big one um, that influences stability um, as much as anything and he said no he's not he, he, what you asked for he said he can't do that and and it points out and Charles West was a prominent Philadelphia shipbuilder he had a reputation to protect he knew what he was doing he had the confidence um, and, the, and the autonomy to say no we're not doing that um, and the, the owner really had no choice but to acquiesce. Uh, he, he wasn't given an option. He could have taken his money and gone, but, you know, the thing is he'd already, he was already committed. So, um, you know, if you're, and if you're not going to trust the shipwright, um, why'd you hire him? So, you know, these guys were at the mercy to, to a large degree uh, of these shipwrights and they needed to trust them and not try to put pressure on them like the pressure that William Hutchinson complained about where, to beat the tax rule owners were having their shipwrights um design vessels that proportionally were less than ideal and 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 in his view dangerous um, just as a you know as a rule beating measure and he said this is a terrible practice it shouldn't be allowed and and you know it's pretty short pretty short-sighted i think on the part of a shipwright to agree to do that because if that vessel were to founder and word gets around the docks that, you know, well, you know, he let himself be pressured into doing this. Um, it's not good for his, uh, not good for his future prospects.
1: Yeah, I mean, going back to the example of the Vasa that we were, they were just talking about, I mean, it, it, it strikes me that the shipwrights were doing the owners a, a real favor, even if the owners didn't appreciate it, because in the end, the Swedish state can absorb the loss of the, the right. expenditure of, of, of a warship, whereas those owners, you know, if they do something reckless, it turns out to be very penny-wise uh, and pound-foolish because Absolutely. They'll, they'll, they'll avoid the tax, but then they're going to have to keep the loss of the ship.
0: Well, it's like that wonderful rant that I put in there almost verbatim um, because it's so good of uh, John Crown and Shield. Um, And we don't know if he actually ever sent the letter. Uh, It'd be interesting to know if he did. Correspondence doesn't make that clear, but he's just absolutely going off on uh, his father and brother uh, for um, sending him to sea in that vessel that was so poorly equipped for a winter Atlantic crossing. And he talks about how long it took, how ridiculously long it took, how uncomfortable it was, how many things broke um, you know, how, how poor a voyage it was because, um, you know, the, 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 owners wanted to save a few pounds by, um, by not fitting the ship out properly for that, for that trip. Um, and he, that's his whole point is that, you know, this is Pennywise and pound foolish. We, we, we we would have been way better off and we would have made a lot more money. Um, if, if you had gone ahead and, and ponied up the, whatever it would have taken to properly prepare for this.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I am working on what we call a microhistory,
0: um, the working title of which is uh, A Boston Schooner in the Royal Navy, Commerce and Conflict in Maritime British America, 1768 to 1772, uh, which takes a look at the four-year service of the little schooner Sultana uh, in um, as a British uh, customs interceptor for the Navy. In the Townsend duties period, um, which uh, deteriorated quite a bit, um, helped uh, relations between the Eastern Seaboard and London deteriorate quite a bit in that in that period of time. And a, a microhistory, of course, is a is a way of taking a specific event or series of events and um, and and using that as an entree into something broader and more important. And so, what it's what it's it's going to take up some of the questions that were raised in this book. Um, but it's like, okay, so you've got a, a British-American technology adopted by the establishment of the Royal Navy to use against, uh, basically as a, as a, a, a stick against um, British-American commerce. Um, so it, it brings up all the issues of the maturing British-American maritime economy, um, how the British state was responding to that, and, and, and the policies that it was developing and trying to enforce, um, and the technological aspect of that. We know a lot about this vessel because, because she was bought into the Navy, she was completely thoroughly documented. There is a very careful operational replica of her in Maryland that's been sailing now for almost 20 years. So just a a real unusual treasure trove of of source material there to use to understand how all of that worked. So while this was a a very broad survey of a long period of time and a big subject, this one kind of goes the other direction and and really zeroes in on something specific.
1: as a way of of looking at broader things. Well, it sounds like a really interesting subject. I hope that when you complete the book, we can have you back on to uh, discuss it. Uh, I don't see any reason why we (laughs) can't. Well, uh, Philip Reed, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it.